Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew? This week, we're following up on last week's episode about angle closure glaucoma, talking about how to manage it, and specifically how to manage one of those acute episodes where the pressure's just sky high. A lot of the management of chronic angle closure when it's, you know, worrisome exam findings, but they're not in the emergency room, the pressure's high, but not that high. A lot of that stuff is actually more nuanced these days due to some recent studies that came out. And so we're going to dedicate um, episodes solely to those new evidence-based materials. So that's why today is just the acute ER crisis that many of the junior residents out there are probably nervous about anticipating seeing them soon. Yeah, so that's why we're opening with this. Okay, I have a case for you. I have a case. Okay, what's your okay, case? Okay, I'm... Let's pretend it's I've, your your junior resident again, and I'm just a second year. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Me. Yeah, dude. Like the old times. Yeah. I was gonna say that. You know, I've been demoted from retina fellow to to resident again because of but that my means I'm demoted too. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I then in the ED, I meet a, a 60 year old Chinese woman who uh, takes a Benadryl, and she's in the ED because she's had. A day of severe and worsening left eye pain and blurry vision. Just grossly, uh, she's very injected. And when we check her pressure, her IOP is 65. And she's been like throwing up since she's gotten here. And the reason I'm calling you, my glaucoma friend, is her anterior <laughs> chamber seems shallow by Von Herrick. As well as the IOP is 65. Yeah. I could ask, like every glaucoma doc does to frustrated junior residents, did you try gonioscoping her? But even if you did, maybe it was too hard to see. And why might that be, Ben? Because when I sit down with the slit lamp with her, it looks like her cornea is quite uh, edematous. Especially there's epithelial edema, maybe a little bit of stromal edema. And this is actually probably the biggest reason why this patient would have decreased vision and why they might get halos in their vision is because of this epithelial edema, which can look like these little, uh, like little kind of dots on the epithelium, essentially, like kind of little bulges or like little cysts. Yeah, we even call that microcystic edema. And when you see the words microcystic corneal epithelial edema, you know it's usually from a pressure, acutely high pressure problem. Stromal edema doesn't usually happen as much. It's usually all epithelial for pressure-related problems. So, you know, even if I were to ask gonioscopic findings, maybe you'd see PAS. Maybe you wouldn't, because this can actually happen even before they go actually get full-on glaucoma. It can happen before they even get peripheral anterior synechiae. It can kind of happen anywhere in the spectrum of angle closure. So that's why it's like, okay, well, if it's narrow, I'm sure it's narrow. I'm sure it's obstructed. There's no other way you'd get this sort of thing to happen. Why it's obstructed is a good question you should still answer, but you can be pretty confident that it is, even if you don't see it on gonioscopy. And because I'm a good junior resident for you, I gonioed the other eye, which can help us figure out why things are going on. And in this case, it was relatively shallow, 
But if it weren't, then that should really raise uh, alarm bells that perhaps this isn't your standard primary angle closure case. Right, because a lot of the secondary angle closure cases can come from unilateral problems that can be quite concerning, you know, including ice syndrome or even, again, an, a posterior tumor. I think I've even seen some case reports of retinoblastoma doing this. Yeah. But if the other eye looks suspicious, like an angle closure phenotype also, then you can kind of sit back and go like, okay, this person was probably always going to get angle closure, acute angle closure, and it's probably going to happen to this other bystander eye at some point down the line too. And we'll talk about how to manage that later. But of course, right now your attention's focused on the super hot, super high pressure eye that's in front of you now. Hey, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I'm definitely just one of the best junior residents you've ever had. You truly are. I, I looked at the interiors. <laughs> I looked at the AC and I see some cell and flare. Like there's not much. Maybe it's like one plus. Does that mean this isn't angle closure? Is this actually like a uveitic glaucoma? Good question. It could be a uveitic picture, but in all likelihood, it's not. It's yeah. not unusual for this presentation to come with a little bit of cell and flare. Gotcha. And I also, because of how good I am, looked at the corneal endothelium and see not only endopigment on the corneal endothelium, but then because I saw the endopigment, I did some transillumination on this poor woman and found that there is some uh, transillumination defects. Does that mean that this is actually pigmentary glaucoma? Also a very good question. And for that, I'd say... Did the other eye show any of the same features? Well, no, that's right. It was shallow, and I didn't think the TM, the trabecular meshwork, was very pigmented in the other eye. Hmm. But it didn't have any of the endopigment or... No, it didn't have any endopigment or any of these things. No. Got it. In that case, it's pretty unlikely that it's pigmentary, because that would usually be a bilateral thing. And it still makes sense for an acute high-pressure angle crisis because it could be such high pressure that it's actually leading to ischemia of that iris, of the affected iris, which will lead to iris atrophy and release of pigment everywhere. So it can be misleadingly similar looking to a pigmentary syndrome picture, but it still fits the bill for an acute iris or an acute angle closure crisis. Yeah. You see okay. anything else cool? Yeah, I'm looking at the lens. And I see this weird anterior subcapsular lens opacities. So uh, right under the capsule, anteriorly, there's some opacities. So now I'm kind of wondering, oh, is this actually like a phaco, like lytic kind of a glaucoma or something? Is there some trauma history I'm missing? What are those from? So a lot of the times, again, in a normal situation, you see some material deposits on the anterior lens capsule and you think pseudo exfoliation in this case that again, too i definitely thought about that yes <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to give you credit for what was in your mind but not spoken uh, yeah <laughs> um but in truth it often happens in this again acute high pressure acute angle crisis that these are just little areas of decaying basically dying cells and we call those glaucom flecken. Oh, like the Twitter guy. Yeah, he's hilarious. And we're proud because he's a former University of Iowa graduate. Oh. 
I'm pretty sure his identity has been revealed at this point that he's doxxed himself multiple times. I'm pretty but I'm sure. Not I mean, his, his face is on like all of his TikTok. <laughs> I'm his account is hilarious. My, <laughs> my wife, who's not off the mall, just loves his account. My dad sends me his <laughs> TikToks. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. he's, yeah, yeah, I highly recommend. If you learn nothing from uh, our <laughs> podcast, go follow Dr. Glock and fly, uh, like it on Twitter and TikTok. Yeah. They are very, very excellent. But if you see Glaucom Flecken for real in an eye, it's often in this acute angle crisis situation. Right. After you get a signature, then manage the acute angle <laughs> right. uh, uh, closure. What do you do? What uh, do I remember, you do? Yeah. Yeah, my textbooks told me just do Pilo. So, yeah, this is a bit of a controversy. Oh. None of your senior residents are ever going to tell you to use Pilo unless they say put in Pilo so that we can do an iridotomy. <laughs> mm. Because really, an iridotomy is your best way out of this ER visit for this poor lady. Once you do an iridotomy, you can re-establish a proper pressure gradient between the back of the eye and the front of the eye, and let those pressure chambers equilibrate a little bit, equalize, and then things will settle down and calm down. But what's the rationale then for pilocarpine at all? Why does it even show up in your textbooks and some of the guidebooks that we have? It's, you know, maybe if you think of the iris, at the peripheral iris bunched up towards the angle, if you sort of just pulled that bunched up iris away by meiosing the iris with pilocarpine, by constricting that pupil, maybe you could alleviate some of the angle closure. The problem with it comes from the fact that you know how atropine and dilating drops, we always talk about how they're useful as far as also rotating back the lens ciliary body iris interface. Do like it all it, the time. Yeah. Right. Atropine is great because not only does it dilate the eye, paralyzes accommodation, it also makes the ciliary bodies relax, draws the lens further posterior. So what does pilocarpine do if pilocarpine is basically the opposite of atropine in all ways? It could also make the eye, the lens come further anterior and contribute to your angle closure problem. Mm. And that's more likely to happen if the pilocarpine strong. And this is one of the most annoying kind of like medication reconciliations medications because it comes in all these different strengths. There's like a 1% pilo formulation, a 2%, a 4%. If you want to try this pilocarpine trick, if you're feeling experimental with your poor 60-year-old patient, don't do anything more than 2% strength pilocarpine. But even so, I'd still recommend just going straight to the iridotomy. But maybe you don't have to. Yeah. Before the iridotomy, what? What do? What do before the iridotomy? <laughs> what have you done so far? What? what oh, I've done, done nothing. So I, called, I called you immediately. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. This poor lady's in pain and she's vomiting everywhere. What do I do? Well, I'm really sorry, Ben, but your night's ruined because you're basically going to be shepherding her through this, and it's going to take you a few hours. <laughs> oh. Why would that be? What are you doing this whole time? Oh, fine. You asked me. Okay. You are... <laughs> you're basically putting all these IOP lowering drops in, and even though we know that things like timolol and bromodidine max dose two or three times a day, you got nothing to lose here. Just basically keep watering her eye 
with multiple doses of every IOP lowering drop you've got. And if that's still not doing the trick, you can consider other non-eye drop nuclear options as far as medicines go. What are some of those, Ben? Um, well, there's Diamox. That yeah. not too controversial, uh, I don't think. Acetazolamide. Acetazolamide, yep. That's what yep, the, we're not paid by big Diamox, but we, acetazolamide we are not. is our, yeah. <laughs> acetazolamide is a tough medication to tolerate. It's an oral carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, and it's got a ton of side effects. When I tell a patient you're going to be on this, I say, just try to ride through it. But expect that you're going to get stomach upset, peripheral neuropathy, maybe even bathroom issues, either constipation or diarrhea. Literally, people used to give acetazolamide as a diuretic, so they're going to be urinating too a lot more. And, they, and even sometimes people say they get a weird taste in their mouth, like a metallic taste. Yeah, especially with soda. That's what I've seen it the most with. Soda mm -hmm. tastes terrible. Just nice for diabetics who have neovascular glaucoma, but that's for a separate episode. <laughs> Poor guys forced so, into compliance. There yeah. are even more worrisome side effects of acetazolamide, which is why we don't use it as a long-term eye pressure control solution. Those include things like aplastic anemia. And the sh you know when a patient is trying to bargain with me, can't I just use this pill all the time and I don't have to do the crazy tube shunt surgery you're telling me about, I said, well, it can affect your body's ability to fight off an infection. And in the time of COVID, do you really want that? And then that usually convinces them. Um, yeah. It also acidifies your blood, which can lead to easy formation of kidney stones. It could tip your, you know, stage three kidney failure patient into full-blown end-stage renal failure. Thankfully, all this stuff only really happens at high doses for a long time over many years, but it is possible. Even so, worth doing for this lady who's in extreme distress right now. Right, in the acute setting. Yeah. If those meds don't work, what do you do next? There's another medicine that you can try to reach for, but it depends how comfortable your institution is with using it. And those would be kind of osmolarity-shifting medicines like mannitol, which is basically drawing fluid out of the eye osmotically. But the concern here is that it can also draw fluid out of the brain. Now, at our residency program, Ben, we never used mannitol for those reasons. I remember right. talking once to one of the ER attendings there, and she was like, I'm, I'm not using this. I don't feel comfortable. But then at other institutions I've been at, people gave it out like candy, and things seemed to go fine. It kind of depends on your local practice. Yeah, and it's not like a long-term solution by any means. Certainly not. It's not something I'd ever feel comfortable giving to somebody as an outpatient, because at least in the inpatient ER, they're monitored all the time by healthcare professionals. Right. So that's the only setting I think you can use mannitol, basically for this lady in your emergency department. What about an AC tap? Not a bad idea in most other situations, because sometimes you have people with high pressure who aren't in angle closure, right? They're mm -hmm. nice wide open angles. 
the big downside of the AC tap is that it's so temporary, right? Right. And this we might as well throw in that common pimp question about how long is your AC tap going to help you for, Ben? And uh, hour and work. <laughs> about a hour and uh, 40 minutes. Mm. Am I doing the math right there? What are you basing that math off of, buddy? The AC is about 200 microliters in volume. Mm-hmm. In volume, right? And your eye, without like any medication suppression or anything, usually makes fluid at about two microliters a minute. Yep. So 200 divided by two is 100 minutes. So it's about, you know, like an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah. So even if you completely emptied the anterior chamber of all 200 microliters of it, which is a bit of a scary thing because you don't want to let the lens touch the cornea. That's bad. Right. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. Um, it's bad because it leads to corneal decompensation. For whatever reason, the cornea doesn't care if the iris is touching it, but it cares if the lens is. Certainly, yeah. it's an IOL. Even if you dumped it all out, it's just going to come back in an hour and a half. But would I recommend that any differently in the case of an angle closure glaucoma patient? Heck yeah, I would avoid it at all costs because it's really hard to thread a needle into the anterior chamber when the anterior chamber is basically squashed flat to begin with. You could poke a hole in the iris. Even touching the natural lens with a needle is going to basically turn it into a traumatic cataract. Gradually, but much more accelerated than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, and you can get like lens proteins that are worse than glaucoma and everything too. Mm -hmm. Okay, I won't AC tap then. Yeah, no AC tap unless you're feeling lucky, and I don't feel lucky (laughs) in these situations. So if my meds haven't really controlled the pressure, then what do I do? Take them to the OR? Uh, Before we consider that, you should at least take them over to your clinic laser for an iridotomy. And it doesn't necessarily have to be big, but if you can punch a hole through the iris, somewhere in the peripheral iris, ideally, that would allow fluid that was trapped behind the iris to finally come forward. And often when you do it successfully, you actually see right there in front of you, your laser lens, a little gush of fluid and little debris gushing forward, gushing anteriorly. And when you see that, you can like basically uh, celebrate a little bit because it means your intervention is working. So satisfying to see. Sometimes it doesn't happen, though. And then that's a bit more worrisome because (laughs) maybe it turns out you're not dealing with primary angle closure at all. Maybe you're dealing with something else, like plateau iris syndrome or so-called malignant glaucoma slash aqueous misdirection slash vitreous block. Please, nobody yell at me for using any of those words. It's always an ongoing controversy what that should be called. Now, this episode's not about those things, so we're going to assume that your iridotomy worked. But if it didn't, tune into a future episode on those things, all those other things. And we can also argue about where exactly to place the iridotomy at 12 o'clock or more to the sides. That's also an ongoing point of contention that I have no intention of drawing 
Flack for today. <laughs> yeah, that that's like a long like I think I've seen whole like hour long talks about the ideal position of a, a iridotomy. So yeah, yeah I will say another time. At least as a practical recommendation, again for junior residents out there, I would avoid putting it directly at twelve o'clock. Because oftentimes you get bubble formation from just as the laser energy itself, and those bubbles go away. But if you need to fire a few shots to establish a really patent iridotomy, and then suddenly you lose your view because all these bubbles are appear and they float to the top and they won't get out of your way, it makes it hard to complete what you were doing. So if you generate the bubbles a little away from just 12 o'clock, then they'll float up to 12 o'clock and get out of your way and you'll be able to continue what you were doing. Gotcha. What's another thing that often happens as a transient complication of iridotomy sometimes, Ben? You're talking about bleeding? I am. <laughs> Good bleeding. Job. Remember, remember, remember Dr. DeBroff always saying like, oh, you see some blood? Keep on going. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you agree with that? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. like, some people to decrease the risk of this. So why would the iris bleed? Because the iris is highly vascular. So some institutions, before they say, okay, with your neodymium YAG laser, punch through that iris, some of them would actually say, well, use your argon photocoagulative laser first to sort of burn through at least the first half of the iris. And by doing so, you might kind of <laughs> crisp up some of the blood vessels so they don't actually bleed on you so much. And then punch through the remaining but some people just go straight for the YAG to punch through it. You can still get some iris bleeding in either case. And you can learn more about lasers in our Lasers Fundamentals episode if you're wondering about the different mechanisms of what he just talked about. Right. Now, the danger of the bleeding, it's not going to amount to too much. Even if it bleeds copiously, it usually stops at a certain point. You might be left with a hyphema. But that blood also kind of gets in the way of what you're doing. So counterintuitively, you might want to be like, oh gosh, it's bleeding, I need to stop. No, you need to at least finish what you were doing to achieve some benefit. And the longer you wait, the more blood is just going to accumulate. So actually, seeing bleeding should be your impetus to go even faster, <laughs> to blast away a while you still can. Good to know. And then I, when I see bleeding on an anterior segment laser, I'll usually apply more pressure with my contact lens. Do you agree with that? To try to tamp and not the bleeding? I do indeed. Yeah. You don't want to do it so much that you lose your view for whatever reason. Maybe pressing too much can indent the cornea too much, cause corneal striations that'll interfere with a clear view. But it's true that all of a sudden you're like, maybe I don't need the pressure to be like 10. Maybe it's okay if it's still 20, 25. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, don't forget for medical school, the initial principles of hemostasis, you know, pressure, platelets, product, and thankfully for ophthalmology, we are, there's never enough bleeding to get to platelets and product. <laughs> so you only have to remember one P. It's very simple in ophthalmology. Pressure can control bleeding. You know, we do the same thing in retina surgery. You know, when we have a, a bleeding retina, something got nicked or pulled on, then boom, kick this uh, IOP of 60 to tamponade it. And we don't tell our glaucoma colleagues we're kicking the 60 because they'll okay. get upset with it. So I'm sorry that you uh, <laughs> heard this, this dark secret. Well, actually, some astute students out there may be wondering, like, but I've read that if you have blood in the eye, a hyphema, 
you don't want the pressure to be high after all, because you might worry that the blood might get pressed by all that pressure into the cornea and cause corneal blood staining. Yeah. That's true. So we do have to kind of balance the need for keeping the pressure a little high just to tamponade the source of iris bleeding, while also avoiding pressing whatever amount of blood gets into the anterior part of the eye into the cornea. Talk to your senior resident. Ask them if the pressure you're getting is acceptable. <laughs> yeah. And to clarify for anyone, uh, any cowboys out there, I only kick the 60 for like, you know, maybe like 10 seconds, whatever it takes to get the bleeding to stop. Like, don't, don't leave, don't leave, like, don't try to leave someone at 60 for a long time. That's not a, uh, not a good idea. Okay. What if the LPI doesn't work? Well, let's say that we try an LPI, but just mechanically, I'm having a lot of trouble getting iridotomy to open up. You know, the cornea is really edematous. It's opposed to the cornea. You know, the iris is opposed to the cornea. What are, are we out of luck? Is it OR time? Or what do we do? There's another maneuver you can try with your laser. And this is not as commonly agreed on, but you don't have much to lose for trying it. It doesn't work all the time, but when it does, it's very satisfying. This is an argon laser peripheral iridoplasty. Not an iridotomy, but iridoplasty. And that's when instead of directing your laser to the far peripheral retina, you're actually directing it sort of mid-peripherally. And you're not using a neodymium YAG photodisruptive laser. You're actually using the argon photocoagulative laser. And you're not making a full penetration burn. You're just burning it lightly enough that the tissues contract some you are essentially trying to use this contraction to drag the peripheral iris out of the angle by contracting it more towards the center. Usually people will do this kind of all the way around 360 degrees because in a crisis like this, usually all 360 degrees of the angle are involved. But I don't know, if it's just a focal part of the iris, I suppose you could try just dealing with the... or laying down these laser burns in just that focal area sector too. And if you want to see a video of this technique, then our mentor from Yale, Chris Tang, has a great video on it called yeah, Alpi and Glaucoma Vids. I mean, you know, I know that he's a advocate for it and you can really see in his video really well how the iris issue contracts and, you know, theoretically pulls, you know, the iris out of the the angle and all that. So. Yeah. But but do ask do ask your mentors and your seniors if they're comfortable with you trying it, because that does differ between different institutions and places for sure. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. So you had also asked me, you know, what if nothing outside the operating room works? What do you do then? Now the idea of me being cowardly and wanting to avoid the operating room comes from well, first off, this patient is probably phakic. I didn't ask you about it, but it's really uncommon for someone with pseudophakia to have an artificial lens in there having already had cataract surgery. Really uncommon for this to happen to them. Because it they, could still. Because the lens is so much thinner compared to the native lens. Right? Yeah, the artificial lens is like a fraction of the thickness. Which means after cataract surgery, routine cataract surgery, everybody's angle actually deepens a lot. So it's pretty unusual for somebody to still have primary angle closure glaucoma after cataract surgery. 
if it's like that, you gotta be concerned about secondary causes, really. But let's say that you know this person's phakic. Can you should you think about taking out that cataract? Well, I'm kind of a chicken about it, cause you need some space in the anterior segment just to put your cataract instruments in your phaco tip, your secondary secondhand instruments. And you could try to deepen that chamber in the operating room, but what if it doesn't cooperate? What if you try putting in some viscoelastic and the pressure behind the iris is so much, there's so much posterior pressure that all your viscoelastic just burps right back out? That could happen. If that's the case, then sometimes you have to even, you know, see if one of, sorry, Ben, but see if one of your friendly retina colleagues might even dare consider a posterior approach lensectomy. And that's a bit more controversial. Sometimes you can try to just deal with this and maybe it does cooperate, but the danger is always that if there's something causing us to be pressed forward so much, again, a secondary cause, not typically primary, maybe doing cataract surgery from an anterior approach, like as we usually do, maybe that's just asking for trouble. Usually the lasers work though, which is really nice. Right. So that's the reason. It's not that your attendings just don't want to go to surgery. It's that we really respect all the potential terrible complications of doing a surgery that is really best suited for a nice quiet eye on something that's in this kind of crisis. It just doesn't have the same chances of working out nicely. Um, okay. Oh, I guess we didn't talk about the drugs yet. Yeah, there's just one last thing. Hopefully the iridotomies and whatever else worked for this lady, but let's say it worked. She's about to be discharged. She's much happier. She's much more comfortable. What's the last thing we're going to tell her in particular about that Benadryl, Ben? Yeah, we're going to tell her until we have like, I know we have a long-term solution to prevent this from happening, that we're going to avoid uh, anticholinergics and sympathomimetics because they can have these dilating effects. Right. So, this is often actually a question that, as residents, you might field from your in-basket duties from other doctors, saying like, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm about to start our mutual patient on sertraline or something, but I've read that that's contraindicated with glaucoma. Can she be on this? And there's a lot of, part, in particular, antidepressants and antipsychotics that also have some mild anticholinergic effect. And as you can imagine, if your patient's got primary open angle glaucoma, and then you can be like, yeah, fine, don't worry about it, just put them on the med. But if they're predisposed to angle closure, that anticholinergic effect could dilate the pupil more and contribute and place them at risk for an acute angle attack crisis. But the good news is we just got an iridotomy in this lady. And assuming that it holds patent, it should keep her safe from further acute angle attacks, even if she uses some of these other medications. But let's tell her, this is just for your allergies, the Benadryl. Try not to use it until we can be more sure that this laser is really going to be a permanent thing for you. Because sometimes the lasers just heal over, like your bot, your iris just heals the laser iridotomy shut, and then you got to do it again. And sometimes even you got to do that once every couple of years to keep it nice and open and keep it functional. Yeah. So until you're sure that it's a reliable thing, maybe avoid some of those medications. But once you've got it in there, go ham. 
We saved her, Andrew. We fixed our problem. I think I think we both equally contributed here. But uh, so good job, bud. As usual, the jun- <laughs> poor junior resident does all the work. Oh uh, no! I in this case I would have needed a little bit of help. You know, I, I remember though, like the first case I'd seen um, in the ED when I was like a medical student for you know in ophthalmology was someone with angle closure, and I remember coming back and you know I would as a student was hoping like put in drops like every whatever twenty thirty minutes to try to break mark the closure and then eventually helping with the LPI, you know, help hold the head in place. And like that actually like really, I thought was very, and then, you know, just the relief at the end for that patient is what um, got me to go into ophthalmology. You know, that's like one of the stories, but one of the bigger stories that got me to be really interested in ophthalmology. But then you so betrayed I hope, your glaucoma inspiration. Yeah. Oh, very quickly, <laughs> very quickly. But, but I hope, um, you know, the residents out there are able to help someone in such distress as here uh, at some point in the future. Yeah. If you'd like to be heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ear with the number four. And our website's still up, Eyes4Ears.com with the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found us is very helpful. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.